Thank you. Welcome to this informal uh, meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for this meeting, I will read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written, written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will start halfway down page 22, roughly halfway down, with the paragraph beginning, this is by no means. And Tim will work through the, through the text, paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. If you have a question, please use the raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. We will try to close around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. Thanks, can you hear me all right, Alistair? Good, okay, I'm just gonna share the screen. So uh, my name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, good to see everyone this evening. It's good, uh, I, I see a few cameras on it. If I can see who I'm speaking to, it, it, it really helps. Um, so just to recap, just so we know where we are in this, we've just diagnosed ourselves as alcoholics by virtue of the fact that we overshot and we realised we were overshooting, uh, but carried on drinking large quantities anyway. There we go. And then there's this thumbnail sketch of a rather disagreeable alcoholic whom we're supposed to identify. Now, uh, this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behaviour patterns vary, but this description should identify him or her roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Just a footnote there. I think by and large, you can divide a, a alcoholics that or certainly one people I've known into one of two categories. And there's, there's some overlap. It's not hard and fast. There are some people who, whenever they drank, it was a disaster. Um, um, you know, they, they punched, as Tom W says, you know, they punched a nun and were found in a bed with a German shepherd. Um, uh, you know, they never had a normal drink. Every time they drank, it was terrible things. Other people, and I'm much more like this, there are some dramatic incidents. I was much more a sort of drip, drip, self-destruction type. So it was the overall effect of drinking buckets of alcohol every day for years, which wrecked my life. Uh, on any given on any given day, the chances were nothing dramatic was going to happen. No dreadful episodes were going to happen. It was the overall effect. So this idea, you see that this example it, it gives here, one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation. 
that wasn't necessarily every single drink, but my drinking generally um, entailed suffering and humiliation. So that can sometimes need to be adjusted for sponsee. Some people identify with that readily. Others will, you'll need to adjust it to describe the general effect on the person's life of the alcoholism, or if the acting out is in uh, one of the other areas, that's, that can be even more the case, that there's no particular dramatic episode, but it's the, the overall effect. Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? <laughs> I don't know how many newcomers you've sponsored, but they, they, they always think that they're still displaying common sense in other areas. Well, that's a, that can vary from person to person. Um, perhaps there will ne never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. Uh, we are not sure why, once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. This is very helpful because what it means is the whole question of why is not relevant. I remember um, my Tom W. poking my sponsor in the chest and saying, why is not a helpful question? Um, my sponsor was going through something. and But why? Why is not, not always a helpful question. What matters with my alcoholism is the that, not the why. The that is that I overshot repeatedly hundreds of times, if, well, thousands of times, but certainly hundreds of times, and terrible things happened to my life as a result of that. That's the relevant thing. The why is neither here nor there. Uh, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. Uh, We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Now, there are, oh gosh, there are lots of points in this paragraph to be pulling out. So first of all, um, we're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens. Now, uh, my friend, I've got a frabbin, let's say the name, he's got an unusual name, but let's call him Bobby. He's not called Bobby, let's say he's called Bobby. But Bobby, someone gave him a box of chocolates. Maybe some of you have been given boxes of chocolates over Christmas. And he had one of the chocolates and he thought when he ate it, oh, I like this. I like this for reasons other than chocolate. And then the, the, the neck now, rather than saying, oh, dear, I shouldn't have done that and calling someone. He thought, now I've got a little secret. I've got a little box of special chocolates. Which are, and this is going to go on my special shelf and I'll have one a day. Now, the next day, he had two. Oh, just a couple of chocolates with a little kick to them. And now, within about a week, 
he was buying bottles of vodka. The first chocolate was an error. Now, my experience with, with errors like that um, is that if you admit straight, if you come clean straight away and admit it, then no harm is done. It's the, it's the immediate secrecy which that, that seems to be what turns it into a problem. But I, even when it's by accident, I'm a bit, I can be a bit shaky for a little bit. So I've, I've had it with desserts where I, I made a mistake. But, but you have to be careful with sponsors with this. It's not unusual for people to have a drink by accident in a bar. And I'm like, yeah, you're having a cranberry juice in a bar and you're just picking up glasses you're not checking i mean the number of people have cranberry juice and vodka the, the the people in bars will often serve you know you ask for a cranberry juice and then a cranberry juice and vodka you get served two cranberry juice and vodka vodka sometimes people will subconsciously or consciously test fate um so the question why are you in a bar not being careful about your drinks that's the real question yeah it can happen but there are sometimes questions anyway back to the point um something happens not necessarily immediately sometimes people are off to the races straight away sometimes it starts something which takes a little while to build up and kick off uh, if any of you are in SLA. You might identify, certainly in that area, identify with you know, dipping your toe in uh, seems safe for a while, but it starts the whole procedure again. And within days, weeks or months, you're back to where you were. Uh, both in the bodily and mental sense. Now, as it, what's interesting about that, before we're, talk, we're talking about the physical craving, which takes over after the first drink, here it's conceding that the physical craving has got mental element, which it very clearly does. For the physical craving to operate, my mind has to be subservient to it. So when, it, when the, the, I'm physically prompted by probably part of my midbrain to say, uh, let's have another drink, my mind is saying, yes, let's, and I go and buy one. I, there are people who said they drank against my will. I don't, I'd never consciously drank against my will. Every drink I ever had seemed like a good idea at the time. But the point is here, I don't get terribly hung up on the fact elsewhere it's described as a physical craving. And then here suddenly it's bodily and mental. So which is it? You don't need to argue with it. Very clearly, any physical craving has got to go through the mind to turn into the operation of, of having a drink. Uh, but the point is the that, not the why. If, as it says here, experience confirms that again and again and again, you set off the cycle just by dipping your toe into it, then it's the that that you have to deal with. And the why is neither here nor there. Um, also, just to underline this point, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop, that refers not just to the bout, but to the fact of drinking, the return to the drinking lifestyle. And there's going to be more of that with a man of 30 on page 32. Uh, further point, with sponsees, particularly people that are a bit iffy about step one and confused or just have lots going on in their minds. 
between 23 and 44, there's a sort of ed- almost endless and tedious explanation of the so-called mental obsession. In other words, the state of mind which induces me to have the first drink. And the proposition implied by step two is that to do so is insane. For me to have the first drink is insane. So why am I having it? Um, now, to have the first drink is in this proposition, to have the first drink is insane. Uh, that has to be subscribed to first before you can even look at the question of insanity. And so you've got to get the sponsee to sign up to the idea that when they drink, all bets are off, as they say. When they drink, all bets are off. If there's any sense that the individual is able to control the amount once they start, to have the first drink is not insane. It's only insane to have the first drink if one loses all control after the first drink. So that this is an important turning point. Now, with step one, there are lots and lots of different ways of taking people through step one. And as I was saying to someone earlier, um, exactly how you take someone through step one. I've taken, I don't know how many hundred people through it. Um, uh, how you take them through will depend on you and them. And there are so many factors involved. Some people you can go through step one in half an hour. Other people, it's, it's months because of resistance and all sorts of confusion and taking a while for the brain to clear. But um, there's some clever structure in the book. And what the way I think about step one, it's like two fields in the countryside, two fields. And the first field is huge. And the second field is huge. But there's a small turnstile at the end of the first field to access the second field. And then you run around the second field and then there's a small turnstile to leave the second field and go beyond. And although there's a huge amount of material, let's say there's two fields. The first field is all of the material on the physical craving. The second field is all of the material on the so-called mental obsession. So the first field is what happens when I have a drink. The second field is what happens when I try and stay away from a drink. Uh, now, the, the, the second field is only, the second question about why I keep going back is only relevant if there's a problem with drinking in the first place, if I can't control the amount, if I have a problem with moderation. So although there's a lot of material to look at with the physical craving, ultimately there's a small turnstile uh, to get through, and it's this. Um, are you positive that, this is what you say to the individual, are you positive that when you drink, virtually impossible to stop, yes or no? If there's any doubt, sit on that question until it can be answered yes or no in a black and white way. So I, as I say, the insanity of the first drink is predicated on a, a strong yes to that question. So that's like the first turnstile. And then there's a, the second turnstile is on 44, where it it's, uh, takes the first question and adds a second question. If when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, that's rephrasing the question in a different way. Uh, 
when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. You're probably alcoholic. I'm not going to cover the fact it says or there. There's a technical reason why it says or. It should say and, but for various reasons, it says or. We'll come to that later on. But the point is, um, to get through step one, you can either do it quickly or you can do it slowly. But those two questions need to be signed up to. Number one, when you drink, are you off to the races? Yes. Good. Tick. Therefore, is it? would it be insane for you to have a drink? Yes. But you did. Yes. Tick. You got the second part of step one. Um, so the first turnstile is on 23, second turnstile is on 44. And it's very clear that this is what is going on. Uh, these observations, the above observations, would be academic and pointless if our friend, you and me, never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. So this is an introduction to what's going to happen over the next 21 pages. It's done largely with the physical stuff. It's more interested now in the mental stuff. So the problem is the mind that takes you back to the drink. Uh, if the mind didn't take me back to the drink, the fact I'm triggered when I have a drink, uh, and just go back into the mental fog of drinking. Uh, that's not going to happen unless I have the first drink. It neatly summed up with that old-fashioned AA saying: if you don't have, if you don't have the first drink, you can't get drunk. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Um, now, what's so interesting, I'm going to be a bit naughty. That's always my favourite bit. Um, the uh, If you go to lots of meetings, particularly meetings where they're not really sort of step focused, they're more sort of general discussion and they're all very friendly and nice and genial and so on. But you'll hear lots of very peculiar statements like I drank on and then people will list all of the things they drank, all of the, the reasons they say they drank. Or people will relate stories about a relapse and they'll say, well, this happened and then that happened and then that happened and then I drank. They're offering you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility. So you're nodding away. You think, well, that makes sense. If that happens, well, I'll probably drink too. But none of them really makes sense in the light of the habit an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. So this is the point. Uh, even, let's say it's extreme anxiety or depression or loneliness. Uh, there is no anxiety or depression or loneliness, which is going, which is not going to be exacerbated by drinking buckets and buckets of gin. Um, as someone pointed out to me when I was new, I'm not surprised you're depressed. You've been drinking a depressant daily for a number of years. This will depress you. That's why they call it depressant. So it doesn't make sense. Even the most plausible reasons don't make sense. And that's the point. But unless people have understood their own step one, they won't see through other people's implausible alibis. And 
it's amazing. Even in big book circles, even in big book circles, I'm not going to name names about speakers, but, you know, you'll figure it out. When we get to Jim's story later on in chapter, whatever it is, three, um, it's very clear that the story about what happened preceding his relapse is the story of an ordinary person having an ordinary day and he relapses. And Fred's story is the story of someone who's having a sensational day and relapses. People make a huge play of where he was, he had an argument with his boss and that's why he relapsed. And he was, uh, he had a, you know, a little resentment that day and so he relapsed. And well, if that was the case, everyone who has an argument with someone in AA would relapse and everyone who has a resentment would relapse. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up to indicate whether you've resented anyone over the last week. I imagine a few hands would go up. It's not about that. It, the, the, this, the surface reason is not the reason. There's something else. And I, I, I don't know, you know, if you don't like spoilers, put your fingers in your ears right now. But the real reason why Jim and Fred relapsed was because they failed to enlarge their spiritual life. That's why. Back to this. Um, so any reason that I would give myself for drinking, and uh, my chief ones were, were loneliness, anxiety and depression. They don't make sense because the drinking made those worse in the short term and the long term. Um, they sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. Uh, this is a people struggle with this uh, analogy, simile. I always get get them muddled. Whatever this is, story, figurative story, um, because it doesn't quite doesn't quite match. But there's a, a core to it. Uh, which unlocks this and makes it very useful. And it's this. This man, it we know two things about him. Number one, he's got a headache. Number two, he, he uses a hammer to beat himself on the head. Now, the fact that that won't actually get rid of the headache is neither here nor there. What we're going to look at is those two points. He's got a problem, right? He's got a solution, except the solution makes the problem worse. And that's the point. There's temporary relief, but the price outweighs the relief. And, uh, you know, if any of you are in Al-Anon, I won't ask you to raise your hands. I know it's embarrassing enough as it is. Um, <laughs> uh, it's the same thing when you're tempted to say something, to encourage someone to do a small household task or to you know, whatever. The temptation in the moment is it's that the, the idea of being able to finally say the thing you want to say is overwhelmingly appealing, but it's going to cause two days of tension between you and the other person and may ruin the whole relationship. Short-term gain, long-term pain. That's the deal uh, with the man with the hammer. There is short-term gain, but it comes with long-term pain. What, what is the gain? It is relief. The jaywalker is exactly the same structure. He gets short-term gain, excitement, but long-term pain, broken back. And so this is the path, this is the addictive pattern. 
the persistent return to a destructive path. Why did someone return? Because at some conscious or subconscious level, it is it, suffused with the glow of some kind of gain. Um, and it's also summed up uh, by Bill W. An appalling lack of perspective. And that's not just a figure of speech. If you close one eye and hold your hand up against a distant object, say Nelson's column, your hand will look bigger than Nelson's column. And your hand, of course, is smaller than Nelson's column. So what is close to you when you have a lack of perspective? So when you're looking with one eye, you can't judge depth. You can see the objects, but you can't judge depth. You have no perspective. Uh, what is close seems uh, big. What is distant seems small. And the way my alcoholic mind works is what seems close and big is the relief. What seems distant and small is the consequences. And in my mind, the calculation goes, ah, the consequences, who cares? I'll deal with those tomorrow. Right now, I just need to blow the cobwebs away. So the appalling lack of perspective. There was a, 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 a question from Seamus about an earlier passage. Uh, when, so when, some, when someone stops drinking, they react much like other men to what? Um, I don't know. I don't really understand that passage, except in the very general sense that um, uh, so, so it was true for me when I had periods of sobriety on my own before I got to AA. Lots of things normalized externally. Inside, I was crazy, but lots of external things normalized. I think that I think that's the general point they're making. I may be wrong because it's so unclear. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, you'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Um, and, and this is good advice. If someone at a meeting is saying they drank hot because of, and then they make a list, do not bound up to them after the meeting and try to point out that they're, that they're full of whatever. They won't appreciate it. So um, just, just a warning with that one. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they're satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, again, malady, strange word, uh, they're a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday they will beat the game. I think this is the first mention of obsession. I may be wrong. But the point is, the mental obsession, people will know, if, if you know me, you'll know this, this image. Uh, if I'm obsessed with the Duchess of Argyle, what it means is I have a little room in my house which is plastered with pictures of the Duchess of Argyle. And I read every book about the Duchess of Argyle and see every documentary. Now, that's the more, the sort of ordinary meaning of obsession. Uh, what that is really is, is, is a preoccupation. The obsession they're talking about in the big book is the um, persistently recurring delusion that a drink is a good idea. So it's not constant, it's persistently recurring. And that's what makes it tricky. If it was constant, you'd be able to track it. But the point is it goes away and then comes back. Um, 
How true this is, few realise. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. This is true not just with drinkers who are drinking, but with people who are in AA, often people who come back from a bad slip. And this time, although they're like physically going through the motions, they're not getting it. There's something blocking them from fully giving themselves to it. And it's a very curious and it's a very disheartening phenomenon to observe. Um, and you see people with that attitude about them exactly as if they were, it's exactly as if they were drinking. Sometimes people are sober and they're just as trapped and unable to do the program. It's almost as though they're drunk. Uh, the tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, uh, the happy day may not arrive. Uh, by the way, it's used the phrase real alcoholic, uh, but it hasn't really contrasted with another type. It's also used true alcoholic. It's unclear why they're using those adjectives there. Sometimes people will introduce themselves as, you know, my name's Arthur, I'm a real alcoholic, uh, which can serve to aggravate. I'm not sure who it helps, as it aggravates people say, well, I don't, what am I? No, I'm not real alcohol. I'm just an ordinary alcohol. You're the real, you know what I mean? It starts arguments. So I don't do it. Um, he has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. Relevant point here. Uh, the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. What I've heard people say a lot in meetings, this is a, a common kind of sharing pattern. People will recount a litany of emotional and practical disasters in their life. And then they'll say this, but I don't want to drink. So I'm going to be okay. And the, the logic is this. Whether or not I'm going to drink depends on whether I want to drink. And what this is saying is whether you want to drink uh, does not tell us whether you're going to drink. So the fact I, this, uh, this is what I found baffling during the summer of 1993, which is my last drink was in, in the July of that year. I would not want to drink, not want to drink, not want to drink, not want to drink, suddenly want to drink. And every time I was sober, I thought, well, it's fine now. I don't want to drink. Enjoying AA, going for coffee after the meeting, reading my Melody BT, doing all of the other things I'm supposed to do. And I don't want to drink, so I'm okay. Just because you don't want to drink does not mean you're not going to drink. And, and Davinda brilliantly says, continuous, you know, when they celebrate anniversary, when we celebrate anniversaries in AA, we say, you know, for... 60 days or six months or six years of continuous sobriety he says continuous sobriety doesn't keep you sober the fact you've been continuously sober is not evidence that you're going to continue to stay sober and this is a terrifying point if i'm not sober because i if if wanting to stay sober will not guarantee me staying sober what will and that changes the game completely 
Um, this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. The, um, the fact is, it's well said in lots of big book studies that the italics are important. I think that's right. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we're without defense against the first drink. This is a really good paragraph, I think, on defining the mental obsession. It comes at it in different ways, different angles. This is great. The key line here, the key phrase is at certain times. Now, the corollary of this point is at certain times we are able to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. So there are times when, when I consider drinking, I remember the horrors, that memory is sufficient to keep me sober. What it's saying is that there are times when that's not the case. Either you can't bring the memories to mind or you bring the memories to mind, uh, but they do not have sufficient force to keep you away from a drink. So this is the same point as earlier. The ability to stay sober comes and goes. It's not, I mean, some people it's kind of, it's just not there at all. Other people it's, it's they flip back and forth. But the point is just because now, just because right now I can remember the horror and that's sufficient does not mean my mind will not flip. I need something for those, my, those moments that my mind is going to flip. Uh, in AA, they, what's commonly said in meetings is um, keep the memory evergreen. Uh, when you feel like a drink, roll the tape forward and remember all the things that happen when you have a drink. Um, what else do they say? Remembering your, from living sober, remembering your last drunk. And this is not a typo. We mean to say that's not a last drink. Remember your last drunk. Now, all of these tools, I think there are, there's helpfulness in them uh, because uh, the, 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 the God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves, but God won't do for us what we can do for ourselves. If I self-indulgently fantasize about the positive sides of drinking, and ignore the negative ones, then I'm not doing myself any favors. So these, they're, they're not bad pieces. I think that, that there's use to all of those, but they miss the point that those are maybe elements of the recovery process, adjusting the cognition, adjusting the perceptions. Um, and that's helpful, but it's not the whole solution. And that's where it gets, that's where it gets tricky. There has to be something more. And that's what the point of this whole chapter is. Um, my sponsor refers to this as at certain times falling between the commas. What causes me to fall between the commas? Self-will, self-reliance, self-absorption, anything beginning with self. The almost certain consequences. Oh, there's a raised hand. Alistair, yes. I, did with, um, I wondered if you cared to comment on the um, we've lost the power of choice. It's something you hear in, in meetings a lot is um, today I have a choice. 
Yeah, okay, that's probably a fair point. I'm going to try and put this as diplomatically as possible. So someone uh, very early in their dream has, I mean, I'd never really had it. Basically, whenever I was presented with alcohol, I knocked over chairs to get to it, drank it as quickly as possible, as much as possible, made myself. On my 18th birthday, I was throwing up in half an hour. I was already just gone. There are people that did have a choice. I was not, I was never one of them. People say that, that choice has been restored. Now there is a choice point. That, so, so it's not it's not an entirely ridiculous thing to say. There is a choice that is to be made, and the choice to be made is to give myself to this program. So uh, but that's the choice. The choice is either to carry on as one is going or to give oneself entirely to this program. Um, and part of giving oneself to the program is to make the decision, I'm not going to drink today no matter what. And then I'm going uh, to use the tools of the program and allow the power of the program to take over from there. So there has to be a firm commitment but then the firm commitment is to turn oneself over to the program, the people, the power, and the principles. But today people say, oh, so I, choose, I choose not to drink. Um, and I think this is, uh, it's one of those questions that, you know when people say it's just semantics. I think that people have, I think this, is, this difficulty arises from a different, different understanding of what the word choice means. To me, a choice is where there are two paths, two viable paths available. And I'm way up. Oh. Alistair, I think I've lost everyone. Are you that? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we'll start for a second. You're back now. If you could repeat right. the last bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that point again. So a choice is when there is more than one path available to me. There's more than one viable path available to me. If there is only one viable path available to me, I'm not making a choice. I'm sitting by a window. Uh, in, in theory, one of my options right now would be to lift up the sash and throw myself out. Of course, I'm not going to do that. But I'm not sitting there choosing, repeatedly choosing not to throw myself out of the window. If I were to see throwing myself out of the window as a viable option, I would already be mad. For me to be considering drink, even potentially as a viable option, I'm already on the other side of the looking glass. Um, this is well summed up later in, I think, the next chapter, where uh, so the contrast between being in the alcoholic state is I have no choice but to drink when the impulse arises. And I don't pick when the impulse arises. When the impulse arises, there was no choice. Now that I'm sober, uh, drinking is, I couldn't, I think what he says is, 
uh, I couldn't drink if I wanted to, or words to that effect. I couldn't drink if I wanted to. And that's how I feel today. I could no more drink than I could go into the kitchen and open up a bottle of bleach and drink that, or jump out of the window, do a hundred other, do a hundred other things. Um, so I think the point that people are making when they say I have a choice today, I, I think it does have some validity in that, in that what the people are trying to indicate is that they don't have to drink. There is another way of life. Fine. But in the strict sense, as soon as one is having to sit there and toss up the pros and cons of drinking or not, that you've already, you're on the other side of the looking glass already and grace will see you through that decision. The fact you're, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not wisdom which will get you through that decision. It's grace, because to be asking yourself the question already indicates that you've lost the plot. Does that answer the question, Mister? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So the almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they're hazy and readily supplanted the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is, the complete, there is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. So very, we've, I think we've already really covered lots of these points, basically to say, uh, uh, when I think of a drink, and I'm in an insane state, uh, the defense mechanism, defense mechanism simply isn't there. Um, the alcoholic may say to himself the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how, or perhaps he doesn't think at all. And so I think what it's introducing here is that there are various ways in which the first drink gets approached. Uh, you know, there's this defiance here. It won't burn me this time. There's not thinking at all. There's trying to reason it through, but the calculation not working. It doesn't, the, the how doesn't matter. It's the that that matters. So all these different approaches to the first drink, it doesn't, you don't have to identify, well, which one was true for me. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that it happened that's relevant. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink or what's the use anyhow. Uh, the, I think the, the, uh, an interesting point here is whatever point you've got to, uh, you're going to have another drink and your mind will come up with a rationalization to make it seem reasonable. But that's the way around it's happening. The decision, the, the not decision, the impulse to have the next drink is winning out. And then to reduce the, the pain of doing so, you give yourself a, a reason which seems reasonable. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would, be, there would have been many thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot within AA. There is a solution. Almost none of us likes the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, 
the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. There's an important point here that it's a process with a beginning and a middle and an end, and the beginning and the middle and the end are measurable. You can measure whether the process has been completed. What is the process? The first nine steps backed up with the last three steps. And it's very clear. Is there anyone one is continuing to harm? Uh, have you have I conveyed all the secrets? Have I made every amend that uh, I can think of that's within my power to make? It's measurable. Uh, and the process needs completion. But we thought it really worked in others, and we come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we've been living it. Very useful line. Um, th this is the first come to believe in the book. The second come to believe is to came to believe in a higher power. But before that can become relevant, I've got to exhaust plan A before I'll seriously consider plan B. So I've got to get to a point in step one uh, where I'm, uh, there is no further mileage in plan A. Hopeless, futile. These are pretty absolute terms. Futile is without any point whatsoever. Hopelessness is without any hope whatsoever. And it's very neatly summed up. Someone told me this once and it, it, help, it helps a lot. Step one is to say, I have a problem and I have no solution, and therefore I have no solution. The nature of problem is it's something without a solution. The alcoholic insanity is, I've got, I, I've got a problem, I'm gonna try plan A. Oh, that's failed, I know, I'll try plan A. Oh, that's failed, oh, I know, I'll try plan A. And you go round and round and round trying plan A. You gotta to get to a point where you say, no, plan A has never worked, it's never going to work. Um, so to give oneself to the program, one's got to abandon any notion of doing of, of whatever, whatever other plans you've got. Seamus has got a question, and I want to refer to uh, this thousands more demonstrations, because I think when, obviously when this was written, there are, you know, a hundred or so people um, in in AA, and that was kind that was kind of it. So, what are the thousands that they're talking about? Um, okay, so the first edition, I've got a little first edition here, not a real first edition, a fake first edition. Uh, the original wording is this. But for the grace of God, there would have been 100 more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot. So they changed the wording in the later versions of the big book to match the fact that the fellowship had grown. But originally it was 100 there. Um, when, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, What's been pointed out to me is if there's someone in trouble in the room in AA, go and talk to them. Now, don't ram the big book down their throat. Ask them how they are, get them to talk about themselves, take their number, start a discussion that way. But you've got to go to them. Uh, once the relationship has been established, it switches and 
you make it clear that the onus is on them to take the initiative to contact you. But the initial contact is very difficult for people. You have to approach people, uh, both newcomers and also people, if, if you've got some time to approach people who you might find insufferable in the meeting. Um, you know, whining and complaining and difficult and obstructive and group consciences and just talk to them. Maybe you can help, maybe not, but you've got to get to know them first before they'll ask for help. Um, when therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, uh, so recovered, there was nothing left for us but to pick up. There was nothing left for us. When the old way, when you're done with plan A, there is only plan B. There was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. Sometimes people are very resistant to the program. And you think, I need to like explain more about the program and like convince people and persuade people and gradually resolve all of the difficulties. But when people have got resistance to the program, it's like the little porridge pot. It just keeps on producing porridge. You spend half an hour, 45 minutes an hour, satisfactorily resolving difficulties and problems, only to discover the little porridge pot overnight has produced another load of questions the next day. You're back, at, you're no further ahead. Um, the real problem when someone's got a lot of resistance is that, that they haven't yet come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of whatever they're doing so far. Um, when I had nothing else, I, all of my objections dropped. I just took it on trust at that point. Um, pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven and we've been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. Uh, Alistair, did we talk about the fourth dimension before? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think we briefly touched on it, that it wasn't time. Okay, so I, I'll touch upon it again, because not everyone's heard the other talks. If this is a repetition, I'm sorry. Um, the... Um, A lot of the early AAs got the, their ideas from Emmett Fox. And if you look up this idea in Emmett Fox, it explains it a lot more. Um, but one, my understanding from having read a lot of Emmett, I've worked a lot with Emmett Fox material and, and obviously with the big book for a long time. My understanding is this. It's something beyond the material world. It's recognizing that my real being is consciousness which happens to be operating through a material existence. But my home is elsewhere. My home is not in the physical realm. Now, this is not just, um, under some views, this is not just uh, wishful thinking or new age hooey. Um, if you read contemporary philosophy on the nature of consciousness, I mean, there are, there are disagreements, there are different schools of thought, but there is a school of thought uh, which has its roots in experimental physics, which says that consciousness is the uh, most 
irreducible form of reality and the material reality is one stage removed from that. So if you want to follow that course, uh, you're not in the sort of cloud cuckoo land of, of uh, various forms of Christian science. There's a sound, there's a, there's a pretty sound basis in contemporary philosophy and physics and actually computer science. Computer science is difficulty in producing consciousness. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. But anyway, so, so if, 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 you're temp if you want to believe that, if you want to believe that you're something more than just, as Bill Wilson put it, a $10 bag of chemicals, and that if you want to believe that your consciousness is more than just an artifact of the chemistry set and electrical signals of your body, you've got good company at uh, top universities, in particular the physics departments, the philosophy, de philosophy departments, the computer science department. It's a, it's, a, it's a perfectly legitimate and respectable set of beliefs of which they knew nothing, in at least nothing from an experimental point of view in the 1930s. And that's the point of security that one has. If one recognizes that who one is is consciousness, that's inviolate, it can't be hurt by anything. Um, the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. Um, this, uh, a couple of points here. First one is that this is about, the program I believe is about a, a, a fundamental rewiring, placing life on a completely new basis, which is why there's such a stress here on the hopelessness and futility of life as we've been living it. It's not, a, it's not tweaking material life to make it work better and the reason this is so tricky is if you work the program it will make you better at managing your material life and it can look as though that is what it is about and i don't know if any of you are between seven and ten years sober or clean or in whatever fellowship you're in but there's a, a famously a sort of lump that people have to swallow very frequently between those years. If, if you've been well-schooled, you may have uh, been sort of uh, proofed against that by having good enough spiritual training. But what happened to me, and it's happened to countless people I've spoken to, the programme is for the first few years seen as a very effective way of managing one's life navigating the material world, getting everything on one's wish list, which was denied by alcoholic drinking and making a jolly good go of it in the world. Now, of course, because it does work, it will do this, except as Brian would say, my old sponsor, he said, it's ashes in your mouth. If you can't, if it doesn't work, that method doesn't work, you're distraught because there's, there's what else are you going to do? If it does work, it's ashes in your mouth. You're distraught. What else are you going to do? And there's this so-called second surrender where you adopt the program for its own sake and seek to transcend material reality rather than simply manage it better. Now, on the ground, it can then look the same. Uh, a well-managed life 
style A, using the program as a way of living materially, is going to look very much like a life which is on a spiritual basis, which coincidentally as a byproduct helps you manage life differently. But they're fundamentally different things. And uh, this is a digression, I hope you'll forgive it. Um, one of my problems in my first eight years, I give myself much less of a hard time now than I used to about this. I had a tiny little nervous breakdown at around seven or eight years, a very sort of low-key British one, uh, but it brought everything crashing down. Job, career, finances, relationship, friendship circles, the lot. Everything came down. Now, I'd seen it coming from about three years sober, four years sober, there were twitches on the seismograph. I knew something was on its way. But the problem was this. I went around, I sponsor hopped a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I to say the names. I mustn't say the names. I found some very, very nice people who were very kind and very helpful to me and smart and switched on. And I tried to replicate in my life what they did in theirs. And they were people who had what I wanted. They were, <laughs> they were rich and successful, but not that, that wasn't the point. The point was they were peaceful, they were happy, they were contented, they, they wore their recoveries in life like a loose garment. They, they, they had what I wanted. I was twitchy and tense and very successful in what I was doing in the outside world, but twitchy and tense and having panic attacks at four in the morning. So it was perfectly legitimate that I went to them for help. But here's the difference. Uh, one, of, one of them I don't know anymore, particularly. Another one, I talked to him. And it's like I'm talking to someone from a different species. He's got a very shiny life still. Very impressive. Like island getaway. Um very successful businessman, like grade A social life, jet setting, all the whole kit and caboodle. And he loves it and it satisfies him. There is, he's fundamentally happy in the material world and there is a spiritual dimension which helps sustain that and complements that. But it's not the basis. For me, I'm, a, I'm just built differently it's i had to be 100 percent on the spiritual path for its own sake and and f everything practical f everything material just i couldn't i had to i had to not care at all i had to let go of that completely and i needed people who'd got everything they wanted and were not okay 
they got everything they wanted and they were okay. Fundamental difference. It's so important uh, to find people in AA who have the same spiritual problem. And the same works the other way around. I've sponsored people who did not need this kind of all-in spiritual solution. They just wanted to someone to help them through the stops, help tidy up their life. They're horrified at the idea of giving hours a day to step four. Horrified. And rightly so. If you don't need to do it, don't do it. Go and do something else. And I think those people are there. There are different, I might firm belief are different types of alcoholic in AA. You've got to figure out what type you are and find a sponsor who's been where you are and need something more and who knows what it's to do with reincarnation people going through this plane numbers of times and you know in my iteration maybe if there are iterations my iteration here is one where i cannot be satisfied with the things that people other people are satisfied by i'm going to finish on this point i'm not alone in this don pritz brilliantly said you're an alcoholic of my type, a successful nine to five existence ain't going to touch the surface. Not going to, it's not going to, yeah, you're not, you're not even going to start to solve the underlying problem. There has to be a fun, fundamentally has to be a higher purpose. I've gone two minutes over again. I'm so, so sorry. Alistair. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, and I will now just jump into the, chat um there are recordings of uh of these meetings as you know and i'll drop in the link into the chat um and we were we we stopped on page 25 and we'll pick it up from that point next week and uh with that i'll hand it back to you tim to uh close with the serenity prayer if you care to unmute thank you would you uh please help me close with the serenity prayer god God, grant me the serenity to accept things like change, change, courage, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, Tim.